What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today, I got the privilege to talk to Dr. Veer Vidalani. He's the System Medical Director, uh, Metropolitan Area EMS Authority, and Chief Medical Officer for, for MedStar Mobile Healthcare, uh, pretty much the ambulances that you see around the area in the Fort Worth area and a lot of the surrounding mid-cities. Um, he's the medical director for that. Uh, he also works a lot in the ERs. Uh, within the community as well. A lot of cool things to say, um, very interesting things to say. Some of my view them controversial. It really doesn't matter to me. It was a good conversation. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it because we talked a lot about COVID, um, kind of the state of affairs on a lot of the different sides of how people view COVID um, and as well as research um, that is kind of pushing us forward. So hope you guys enjoy. I know I did. Thanks. We are, should be, yeah, now we're recording. All righty. All right. Dr. Veer Vitalani, right? Yes, sir. Tell me a little bit about what you do right now, kind of what your position is, so on and so yeah. forth. So uh, I, my, my position is a little fun and complicated. So um, uh, anyone who's from Fort Worth uh, should hopefully know MedStar. So MedStar is the EMS provider for uh, Fort Worth and 14 other cities that are attached to Fort Worth. Um, what most people don't realize is MedStar is actually a governmental agency, so it's owned by the 15 cities, um, and they have proportional ownership, and it runs as a governmental organization, um, but for a number of years, it's actually not taken any tax subsidy, and so it, it people think of it as a private organization because they, they bill uh, for services, but they're actually part of the government. Um, so I uh, serve two roles uh, within that. One is as the system medical director uh, for what's called the Metropolitan Area EMS Authority, which is the official name for the MedStar system. Fancy. Um, so that means uh, I'm the, the EMS medical director uh, of record for MedStar, but also for the fire and police departments of all of the cities um, that MedStar uh, serves. So for example, that's not just Fort Worth, but Burleson, Haltom City, um, Saginaw, um, and then some of the smaller cities over here on the west side, like Westover Hills, Westworth Village, um, Lake Worth, et cetera. Um, so, and then I'm also, uh, as part of that, I'm the chief medical officer for MedStar specifically. Um, from an administrative perspective, um, I have a, a, a group of staff here in the office of the medical director, and, and uh, they report up through me to our board of directors. Um, so that's, that's sort of my day job, my, my main job. And then I'm also a practicing emergency physician. Um, one at a JPS Health Network in Fort Worth, which is where we met uh, mm-hmm. and where I did my emergency medicine residency. Um, and then I also work uh, at uh, Texas Health Resources, Harris Methodist Fort Worth, or Harris Downtown, as it's colloquially called. Um, and I, I work there part-time as well. So I'm in the ER somewhere from two to four days a month. Uh, and every other waking moment, I'm doing uh, EMS uh, medical direction. Uh, and then sort of specific to the current pandemic, um, <clears throat> my office is responsible for helping coordinate a thing called the TMOC or the Tarrant Medical Operations Center. Um, we are a part of the uh, Regional Emergency Operations Center and we're responsible for coordinating um, all of sort of public health, public safety and the, the hospital and healthcare systems. So um, when it comes to interfacing between public health, the hospital, fire, EMS, police, et cetera, um, we, we play that sort of coordination function um, so we've been pretty busy doing that. As yeah. Well. So you're kind of a hub right now for all the thing that's going on. You're kind of the one directing a lot of the traffic. Um, I, I, w- I would say we're mostly, um, we're sort of the, um, we're much more of a coordinating body. So for example, when hospitals start to realize that um, a number of their staff are out sick or are uh, quarantined and, and they don't have enough staff to actually uh, support uh, their day-to-day operations, 
um, the RAC or the, the Regional Advisory Council for our region um, coordinates with us to help help supply, uh, you know, sort of contracted staffing through the state um, out to these hospitals. So the state has contracts, for example, they delegate that responsibility of distributing them to the RAC. The RAC contacts us to coordinate with the hospitals and find out who actually needs uh, staffing, et cetera. Um, we, we do a lot of the data aggregation and collection for uh, hospitalizations, uh, trying to sort of predict system surge, that sort of thing. Okay. Now you've also done a little bit of uh, advising to the mayor recently, right? That's kind of a, I saw that video that you and uh, Mayor Betsy Price kind of went back and forth a little bit. Yeah, so, so, so I think uh, that that came mostly out of my work in, in the Tarrant Medical Operations Center, um, especially at the very, very beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of balls up in the air and we were trying to develop a lot of processes looking at what, what our testing strategy was going to look like, looking at our hospital capabilities, um, building an alternate care site if needed, if our hospitals or, or even our uh, nursing homes or uh, LTACs and things started to overflow. That's all part of that TMOC. Um, and, you know, when I, uh, when I say that I'm the medical director for, uh, you know, the city's fire and police department, et cetera, it sort of comes with the territory to be involved with uh, public officials and things. So uh, I, I really just see myself as sort of a resource, um, as, as someone who can try and help out and, and uh, try and stay up to date with the knowledge and, uh, you know, distribute it as much as I can. Okay. Well, um, the reason I mainly reached out to you was, I, one, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on with the narratives about COVID, politics, um, masks, no masks. Um, before we get into that, can we just break down exactly what COVID is as a virus? Um, how does it get into the system? I'll just kind of go, let's start from the basic and start building from there, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, so um, COVID actually stands for coronavirus disease. So, so COVID-19 is the coronavirus disease of 2019. Uh, there are uh, seven, I believe, human coronaviruses. So coronavirus is a, is a family of virus. Um, and uh, there have historically been four seasonal human coronaviruses and, and they've been identified in the past. Um, and they are responsible for um, being one of the many viruses that can cause sort of your standard cough, cold, um, common cold, that sort of thing. Um, there were uh, two what we call novel coronaviruses that we've identified in the, in the past couple decades. Uh, the first was SARS or the sudden, uh, oh boy, Sudden adult respiratory syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, adult or acute? It's one of the two. Uh, acute sounds more accurate. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> you, you say the acronym so much, you don't, uh, you don't end up remembering what all the different uh, parts sound like. Acronyms okay. in and of themselves are completely different languages. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and then there was MERS, uh, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, uh, which was an, a handful of years ago. Um, and then uh, the current novel coronavirus, uh, which was identified and really is actually very um, structurally and genomically related to SARS-CoV-1, as it's called now. And so this is actually SARS-CoV-2. Um, mine, from the last time I looked at it, there's about four gene difference between the original SARS and this current um, COVID-19 um, virus, which is SARS-CoV-2. Um, it is uh, predominantly a respiratory virus, although one of the things that has made a COVID identification and COVID treatment sort of so difficult is it actually can affect um, what appears to be every body system. Um, it predominantly affects the lungs and it has to do with the receptors that are available in your lungs uh, and where uh, SARS viruses like to uh, land and attach themselves. Um, so the standard symptoms are your cough, cough, fever, body aches, chills, the things that you would get with most um, uh, sort of upper respiratory infections or, or um, uh, you know, viral infections. 
Um, but it can also cause diarrhea. It can cause skin manifestations. It can cause um, confusion and uh, sort of some mental mental changes. I remember early on there was a a question of a, a thing called um, hemorrhagic necrotizing encephalitis, which mm. had been, been identified in a couple cases. That was where uh, part of your brain um, dies and then bleeds into itself. That seemed very shocking uh, when we were first <laughs> going through this. Thankfully, that hasn't panned out to be a huge uh, cause. Um, and so that's that's sort of what it what it causes predominantly uh, respiratory syndrome, uh, respiratory symptoms, um, and then from a transmission perspective, I think there's really a couple ways that that has been identified. <clears throat> um, the the overarching predominant method of transmission is through um, virus shedding, usually through the respiratory system, and then landing somewhere on a mucous membrane. So that's your eyes, mouth, nose, etc. Okay, kind um, of explain virus virus shedding. Yeah, so viral shedding. So basically, when you're infected. Um, you know, especially since there is a lot of virus sitting in your lungs, as you breathe, especially as you cough or uh, do something loud like um, sing um, or chant and that sort of stuff, um, you, you release viral particles into the air. You release a lot of particles into the air anytime you do any of those things. So, for example, um, you know, you release um, uh, cells from the inside of your lung lining. You release um, mucus and, and small, um, you know, salivary secretions. And then a lot of those will carry with them the virus that's in your pulmonary tree. And so um, that goes out and then one of two things happens. So the larger droplets that carry the virus um, travel, we say roughly six feet. Again, we talk about six feet as if it's this absolute wall, um, but it's not. It travels uh, on average six feet. Um, and sorry, I should probably mute my phone. <laughs> I forgot to mute mine too. <laughs> I don't know if you're hearing that or not. Very good. So, so one of two things happens. The larger droplets that carry uh, the viral particles go roughly six feet, kind of on average, a little more, a little less, um, and, and they sort of fall to the ground. And so they, they're heavy enough that they land. Um, the very, very, very small particles, or what we call aerosols, they can go further than that. So in some instances, they talk 10, 20 feet away. Um, and it really depends on your ventilation and airflow of the area that you're in. So if you're in a very small, cramped, room with closed windows, closed doors, and no ventilation, um, it can travel the entire course of the room. Um, if your door is open and you have a fan blowing in the direction of the door, um, or you are in the outside space, for example, it tends to dilute and, and sort of dissipate. Um, but that's the, that's the predominant means that people have identified of, of transmission. And then especially those larger particles land on things, and, and at that point they're called fomites, and, and in theory you can pick those up with your hands or um, some other, uh, uh, anything that's touching it. And then at some point, those, um, your hands, for example, could touch your face or mucous membranes and the virus can enter your body that way. Um, so I think generally speaking, the predominant mode of transmission is those droplets within six feet exiting one person's body and landing on another person's body, especially the mucous membranes like their mouth um, nose or eyes. And then probably second to that would be these aerosolized particles um, that transfer a little further than six feet, but in the same way land on an uninfected person, um, enter the bloodstream and, and are infected. So are we um, sure that it's, it's droplet versus airborne? Could it possibly be airborne as the primary means? Yeah, so, so there's, an important, um, dis, you know, there's an important distinction. Airborne versus aerosolized, and really where a lot of the controversy comes from, um, it all depends on how light these particles are and how far they can tra be transmitted. So, um, for example, um, you know, if you are in, uh, let's say, a warehouse, right, 
um, and you have a, a disease that is truly, truly sort of airborne in the sense that it, it goes up into the air and travels a far distance. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about small particles that are smaller than the size of a droplet, but large enough that the air can carry them. Um, and, and that's really what we're talking about. In general, there's a few things to consider. So, you know, the, the standard sort of hazmat concept is um, time, distance, and shielding, right? Mm -hmm. So everything is a factor, right? And, and I, I always try to be really clear whether it's about this or about things in medicine. Nothing's perfect, nothing's great, but there's this concept of the Swiss, Swiss cheese model of error, which you can also apply to a lot of different things. Um, time, distance, and shielding. If you're in a uh, place with an infected person for a long period of time, um, and you're, the closer you are to them, the longer you're there, the closer you are to them, and the less barriers or protections you have between that person's droplets and aerosols and yourself, um, the more likely you are to pick it up. That's basically what, that, that exists not just for COVID, that exists for pretty much everything that's droplet spread. It exists for influenza, it definitely exists for measles, it yeah. exists for meningitis, all the other infectious diseases. And that also, like viral load plays a, plays a big factor and in so that, it, right? Exactly. And so, so what, what those three things really multiplied together turns into is your viral load. And so, and, and really it's, it's not so much your viral load as much as your viral inoculum, what you, what you take in um, from that experience. So, if I walk past you while you're wearing a mask, I'm wearing a mask, and we walk past each other at six feet, the time is very, very short. The distance is, is appropriately spaced apart, and we both have some sort of shielding on. Um, the likelihood of an inoculum coming that reaches the threshold of infection is pretty low. Um, but ha had we been recording this podcast in um, a, a small room, both of us not wearing masks, and if one of us were infected and we recorded for two hours, um, the likelihood there is pretty high because as we're talking and as we're speaking, we're uh, spitting droplets and aerosols at each other, there's poor ventilation, um, and we're close together with no shielding, um, and, and that, that viral inoculum will start to build and it'll reach the threshold where you'll get sick, and anywhere between that day and 14 days from now, you'll develop symptoms. Um, two days before you develop symptoms, roughly, you'll be infectious to other people. So you'll go and record a podcast next week, um, and, uh, and the same thing will occur. And that's, that's basically why, uh, you know, all of these sort of measures are put in place, even if it's just two people. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I think it's important. A, a lot of what I hear, uh, especially in sort of the world of misinformation that, that's uh, predominant right now, <clears throat> a lot of what I hear is absolutes right? Well, you know, so-and-so said this, and, and that means it's true, or that means it's not true. Um, or, um, you know, masks do or do not work. It, it is never a question of if something does or does not work, because nothing, nothing either works at zero or 100%. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's about putting things together. It's about layering, on, layering them on top of each other. Um, and it's about overall mitigation. So let's say that our community transmission was low. So let's say um, uh, my risk was low and your risk was low of, of the number of people that we've been in contact with recently. And we really wanted to record this podcast in person, right? So what are the ways you could minimize the risk? So we could do it from across the room from each other, taking the distance out, right? We could open a window and have a fan circulating air so that fresh air is constantly coming in and expired air is constantly leaving. And we could both wear masks so that if I am spewing droplets, a majority of them, probably not all of them, especially not if we're wearing 
a cloth mask, for example, you're not going to catch 100% of everything. Mm-hmm. But if, if I am spewing infectious droplets, then a majority of them will get caught by the mask, right? And the ones that do make it over to you, despite all those measures, will hopefully land on the outside of your mask and not be inhaled. And, and again, that's where it comes in. Could you still get infected that way? Absolutely. You know, there's, there's nothing that's going to entirely prevent it. Um, but it's all about risk. It's a way to minimize the amount of transmission. And, and when we look at this, not from an individual single person to single person perspective, but if we look at this as a true public health conversation, um, if everyone implements things that reduce our risk by, say, 10 to 15 percent, um, you multiply all of that together and our communal risk goes down. And when our communal risk goes down, the R not comes down, the less people that get infected. And as there are less infected people in the community, everyone's overall risk goes down. And I think that's what we've been struggling to to really get across here. And honestly, we've been struggling to achieve it here is that not since the very beginning of this have we reached a point where our community transmission was really low enough where it was was okay to remove any interventions or remove any measures, in my opinion. And, Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we've been um, sort of struggling with is there is there is definitely, you know, what we call pandemic fatigue out there. You know, people are tired of the interventions. And, and it's a, a bit of a sad reality in the sense uh, that, at least in terms of everything I've uh, read and studied, um, everyone's tired of, of all the interventions, the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions or public health interventions. But, but if we went back six months and we stayed in them for a little longer, we probably wouldn't be dealing with it for as long as we are. Are you referencing like the lockdown or just masks you know, in general? Lockdown, lockdown's an interesting term. Um, I don't think anywhere in the U.S. really did a lockdown. Okay, okay. Um, I think outside the U.S. there were lockdowns. Lockdown, li- quite literally, in the sense of um, you know shut, shutting your homes, um, you know, uh, loudspeakers outside saying not to leave, and and much more like a uh, you know bomb shelter type. That that's not really what we did, and and honestly, that's not what a lot of countries did. And and in reality, that's not what most public health professionals have been advocating for. You know. Um, essential workers always have to work. You know, the healthcare community has to work. There has to be um, supply chains uh, for things. Um, and, and, but yeah, the, the original goal of all of those stay-at-home measures was to get community spread down low enough so that our, um, our four-way process or our four-pronged approach could work. And the four-pronged approach is, um, you know, you test, it, test people. Anybody who's sick should be able to get tested with a quick turnaround time on results. Positive tests um, need to isolate. Isolated tests need to uh, isolated tests need to have uh, their contacts traced. Those contacts need to quarantine, and then anybody who gets sick out of quarantine needs to to get tested again. And and if you if you actually were able to follow that process, um, we could get a handle on this really quickly. Um, but but unfortunately, through through a lot of different means, and and I'll be really honest, I'm a very apolitical person. I try really uh, not to to uh, sort of subscribe to a lot of the sort of um, sort of divisive uh, stuff that we've seen recently. Um, but for a lot of different reasons across the entire uh, country and across the entire world, you know, each one of those places has struggled. And so um, testing, testing is way better than it was at the beginning. I mean, honestly, it is miles ahead. Um, it's still not great, right? So um, most emergency departments can't test you um, uh, and get a result the same day, right? So that's something we can do for flu. We can't do that yet um, with COVID. Um, if you are sick and you call your doctor, you can't then drive straight to a place that can get you tested with a result the same day, right? So that's, that's not, we're not there yet. And I hope that we're moving in that direction. Um, once you get those results, 
honestly, not everyone's isolating, right? So uh, you're sick, but you're still going to work or you're sick um, or you are uh, still why, going to Why do you think that is? Um, there's a lot of reasons. Um, and I won't, I won't um, try and um, assume anything. I think there's such a wide variety. There are some people who literally, if they don't go to work, um, won't be able to put food on the table. Um, there are some people who don't believe the virus is real. There's some people who don't believe the infectivity is real. Um, there's, there's some people where it's purely outside of their control due to living situations or um, inability to isolate, right? So if you live in a multi-generational family um, that relies on each other for uh, childcare and uh, activities of daily living and you're your sole caretaker for your grandparents, you know, you can't isolate. And, and I understand that. that that's, that's, where, that's where we're never going to be at 100%. Right. Mm -hmm. but those who can isolate should so that we can keep those who can't, we can, we can keep on top of their contacts and keep on top of their further quarantine. Right. And it so seems like, it seems like, sorry to cut you off. Um, it seems like a lot of the risk versus reward factors coming in where people really don't think that it's as bad as everybody's saying and the economic, okay. If it's not a shutdown or lockdown, the economic change um, that mortality is actually a lot worse than the disease itself. You know, a lot of people say starvation. There's a lot of interesting um, stats coming out about starvation and depression, anxiety, suicide that are yeah. increasing with all these, you know, shutdowns, quote unquote, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, and, and well, and, and, uh, and, you know, part, part of the problem, and, and I've recognized this, you know, as a country and really in a lot of countries in the world, um, we weren't truly set up to deal with a pandemic very well, right? So, so when you talk about, um, you know, uh, food deserts and, and you talk about people who are going to starve uh, if you go into a lockdown or, or some sort of stay-at-home order, um, wouldn't it be nice if we had a backup plan for those people, right, as a country, like took, yeah. really took care of each other um, and had the social infrastructure that some countries do um, to make sure it was okay. So, so it's interesting. We point to a lot of uh, the Southeast Asian countries as countries that have done a really great job um, of taking care of the pandemic. Um, and, and you can go online and look, you know, uh, I believe it was South Korea, for example, um, there was a, you know, TikTok, there was on TikTok, there was a TikTok, uh, you know, video. <laughs> so girl, girl tests positive, um, is go, you know, starts getting sick, goes uh, straight to a drive through testing center, gets told uh, same day that she's positive, gets sent a care package to her house, including not just medications and over-the-counter things um, and tissues and Lysol wipes and, and that sort of stuff, um, but food and noodles and, and uh, you know, broth packets and, and other things to make sure that they're okay. Um, and, and granted, you know, it's one sort of example, but, but there's a lot that could be done um, if we sort of took the, the sort of um, negativity out of it, right? If we, if we took all the problems and really approached them with solutions, um, I think there are answers to, to a lot of the issues that we're talking about. Um, and, and in reality, you can't build them overnight. And, and mm -hmm. I think that's where some of the struggles have come from is that um, all, the, all the ways to combat the negative effects of a stay-at-home order, um, we didn't have them set up and you're not going to set them up overnight. You know, mm -hmm. in, in, you know one $1,200 payment um, for, for people who are out of jobs, that, that's not enough for them, right? But, but we don't have a great infrastructure to deal with, to deal with sudden mass unemployment. And we yeah. didn't have um, a lot of what we needed uh, to sort of take care of our, our uh, sort of vulnerable populations. And so um, I think that's, that's part of what the issue is, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think that, again, 
I think no one's really, as far as I can tell, and myself included, no one's really pushing for a long lockdown type, uh, you know, approach, you know, unending for, uh, you know, years until we get a vaccine. That's not, that's not the goal, right? Everyone recognizes you have to open the economy. Everyone recognizes that you have to have to have businesses open and you have to have um, processes running. <clears throat> um, but but there are ways to do it safely. So universal masking, at least for now, has been shown to uh, decrease transmission, right? So all the stuff we talked about before. And, and again, <clears throat> are there people who are going to get infected from both the source and, and contact being masked? Absolutely. Um, is it less than if you had uh, no masking? I would say so. And so if you really want to talk about the the longer we fight a lot of the non-pharmaceutical interventions or the masking and the distancing and the cleaning and everything else, um, the longer we're going to have to deal with it and the longer the negative effects we're going to have. Again, my opinion, I'm not an yeah. economist and I'm <clears throat> really not even formally trained in public health. I, I've been sort of trying to, to gather information and analyze it just like everyone else. Yeah. Um, but, but you look to other countries that have done it successfully <clears throat> and that's what they've done. They've been able to reopen their economies um, and, and do so well with the safe precautions that everyone needs to take to keep the cases low. So when you have um, small clusters that do pop up, you're able to quickly test them and trace them and isolate them and quarantine contacts um, so that it doesn't become a, a widespread issue again. And then everyone doesn't have to suffer at the hands of the few who are, who are uh, infected because I, that's what I hear from a lot of people who don't, who don't really agree with, with uh, a lot of the orders that are in place. Yeah. But, but you have to reach that level first. You have to reach yeah. a low level of community spread. And, and as far as I've seen, we haven't really ever reached a low level. We've gotten down to sort of low moderate, um, but we haven't really reached you know, a place where our public health infrastructure can take care of everyone who's sick and every contact who's sick and been able to effectively isolate them, trace them, and quarantine them. Well, as I've been, because I've seen that too, and I've been, I've been following you on Facebook, the local epidemiologist, a lot of interesting things that y'all are saying, um, but it seems like you got to take it further back. It's not, it's not just like we're not achieving the low community spread. The reason would be most people don't think that it's that dangerous. Um, it's still like the flu. It's the mortality is actually a lot lower than everybody's saying because the CDC numbers changed it all. Remember that whole thing? That was kind of a big controversy. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so what do you say about like risk and actual mortality rates for our area, for the nation, so on and so forth? So, so it's a novel virus. Right. So, at the very beginning, we don't know unbridled or not was going to be the infectivity or transmissibility. Um, when I first, the first time I even pulled any data and, and gave a, a presentation, um, the the sort of un, un, uh, unencumbered R not was two point seven, and and it seems to have been in, in around that range. And explain that the reproductive number. Yeah. So so the reproductive number is if I'm infected. On average, not me personally, but on average of all the people who are infected, how many more people are they going to infect? Um, and so what, what I gathered was at the through the original data before anyone started doing any sort of containment measures, it was 2.7. So for every um, one person, 2.7 people would get infected or for every 10 people who are infected, 27 more people would get infected. Um, the goal is to get the r not under one or as close to one as possible um, so that you're not having exponential spread. Right, because if you're if you, you know, ten becomes twenty seven, twenty seven becomes whatever twenty seven times twenty seven is, because that's a really <laughs> big number. Um, and so, 
So that's sort of the goal. Um, mortality is a very important statistic. I, I, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people dead this year that should not have been dead previously, right? That, that, that without the pandemic would be alive today. I think that's the part that some people forget um, is that, you know, it, it wasn't their time. It, it was something that was preventable, um, or at least to a certain extent, some of those deaths could be prevented. Um, mortality is one measure. There are plenty of diseases that are more, uh, have a higher mortality and, uh, and, you know, should be considered scarier. And there are diseases that are lower. Um, mortality is one thing. Morbidity is the other, right? And they, they really go hand in hand. So morbidity is um, your long lasting effects or uh, your hospitalization. So if, if I got infected today, um, the, the general course would be that um, for the first couple of days, I'd be uh, doing okay. And then day five through seven, I'd get really sick and go to the hospital. I, either I'd do fine and recover, or I'd get really sick and then go to the hospital. And I would stay in the hospital for probably another 10 days, and then I'd either get better and slowly leave the hospital, or I would die on day 16-ish on average. Um, and so, you know, again, you multiply that by all of the resources it takes to take care of people in the hospital, all of the um, illness and all of the negative economic effects from those people being sick. Um, but then really, at some point, you reach a breaking point. And this is where mortality can't be looked at alone. If we did nothing as a country, if we really did nothing for, for mitigation or, or control, um, we would very easily and quickly reach a point where our entire healthcare infrastructure is overloaded, right? Um, and at that point, mortality for COVID starts to rise as well as mortality for other diseases. So what does that mean? And th this is where the original concept of flattening the curve came from. Mm -hmm. Let's take a look at El Paso, right? So El Paso right now have an overloaded healthcare system. They only have X number of beds and they have more than X number of patients, including COVID and non-COVID patients. Last I heard as of this morning, over 50% of the people in the hospital in El Paso were there for COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So if you then need something normal, like your appendix out or you're having a heart attack and you need to go to the hospital, there may not be room for you there right? And there may, there may not be people to care for you there. And there may not be beds or medications or, or other things you need. So not only does the mortality then go up for COVID, because if you go with severe COVID and you don't have a bed space, um, that mortality goes up, but also for that person who has delayed care for their heart attack or delayed care for their appendix. Um, and that's what we're trying to avoid. And, and so again, it's relatively straightforward how we, how we avoid all of this. And, and the answer is not Let's lock it all down and, and tell everyone to hide in their homes for two weeks. That's not, that's not really the point. Um, the point is, is that if everyone would do a little bit to help minimize their own risk and really the risk of the people that they interact with, it would multiply and it would overall decrease our community risk and our community transmission. And we would get it down and our economy would open up and it would open up safely and it would open up with the resources it needs from, from the government and everyone else to, to be able to handle that. And the case volume would be so low that we could handle the testing, isolating, tracing, and quarantine uh, quadrants for every patient that got sick. And, and that's really what, what the goal is. And so, um, you know, you look at any other infectious disease that we have, measles, Ebola, um, you know, um, uh, tuberculosis is a great example of the public health infrastructure. Cases of tuberculosis get tested immediately. They are isolated in their home by order, by law order. Their contacts are traced, including the healthcare workers who came into contact with them, including their family members. 
those people are either quarantined or tested or watched and, and are on that loop continuously. And that's how we don't have major outbreaks of tuberculosis in our community. It's an infectious disease. It could be, you know, an epidemic or pandemic if it really wanted to, if we didn't have all these measures in place. And so, and, and there's um, a pretty interesting debate about that because it, it, you kind of get into some interesting ethical arguments about when it's ethically right to quarantine or not quarantine, like force somebody to self-isolate. Kind of, what are your thoughts on that? That fine line on forcing somebody to to quarantine or isolate or not? Yeah. So, so, you know, again, I, I'm not a bioethicist and I, and I don't, uh, I don't hope, hope to pretend to be, I um, am very blessed to uh, work at two hospitals with great ethics teams um, and, and a ton of resources. The DFW community for people who don't realize it actually has um, a number of people who, who literally focus on this as part of their daily job. Um, I sit on, on a group called the North Texas mass critical care task force. Um, it is a group of, you know, quite a number of, um, uh, physicians and other healthcare professionals, ethicists, et cetera, um, who have come up with a um, sort of objective criteria for deciding, um, you know, the, the event of mass critical care. So, so okay. I, I defer a lot of things to, to those individuals and to our, our public health colleagues. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> ethics, ethics is hard. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and, and I wouldn't really, I wouldn't really want to overstretch and, and say uh, that, that, uh, not isolating or not quarantining um, is or is not appropriate. Um, but but what I do know is that unlike how a lot of people are acting and unlike how a lot of, um, you know, uh, of the sort of stuff I see out there, making the decision to um, act in certain ways, whether you're sick or not sick, is not just a personal decision. And this is, again, it's my opinion. It, it's not a personal decision. It is a decision that not only affects you, but it affects um, the people around you, whether they're close family members or uh, coworkers, um, or they are uh, the people that you'll encounter as you go about your daily life, um, and it affects us as a community, and and that's really what it is. You know, we call it community spread because it's it's about the overarching community and how much uh, how much transmission there is there, and and I think people sort of lose sight of that sometimes. It's not well, just about us as individual people; it's about yeah. us as a society. I definitely agree, but I, I do know the the um, kind of the mindset driving a lot of the spread is herd immunity. People want herd immunity to to kind of occur, and that's a really hot topic. You know, a sure. lot of epidemiologists, a lot of guys, and there's there's a guy, and I think it was either Duke or uh, Harvard who came out, and he was an epidemiologist, and he was saying, "Hey, you know, we need to." keep the schools open. We need to let the kids get it, transmit it, and then transmit it to the parents so that herd immunity can occur. Kind of what, what are your thoughts on that? And why yeah, is that a not a good or good idea? Yeah. I'm guessing you're talking about the great Barrington debate. And then there was the John Snow rebuttal. Um, I personally will not uh, comment on a lot of those individual um, releases. I'll, I'll refer people to uh, okay. the posts online that have done a much better job than I could. Um, what I would say is this herd immunity requires as best as I can tell, you know, let's say even at the most conservative end, 50% of people to get infected at some point. Okay. Um, just think about the sheer number of people that would need to be in the hospital or die for us to reach herd immunity without a vaccine, right? You can achieve a threshold vaccination because each yes. disease has a threshold to, for herd immunity to actually occur. Am I right? Uh, in theory. Yeah. So, so again, and, and you know, most people say 70 to 80% it would be, would be uh, standard. It, I guess it really depends on the transmission and, um, you know, the time of illness and the time of, yeah. uh, of uh, 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 season, right? Yeah. Well, no, not season, but um, I'm missing. 
how long it takes before you can get infected. I'm losing a word. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's going to bother me now. Anyways, um, <laughs> so, so it depends on the number of factors. But, but just imagine, right, 50% of people. So just take Tarrant County. Tarrant County has 2 point something million people, right, 2.1 million people. Um, and so even if we said that um, the uh, mortality was, uh, let's say, 0.02%, okay, like relatively small uh, numbers. Um, that's – oh, wait, is that right? I'm going to do that. Po point being, just think about the sheer number of people that would need to die. Okay, and not just die, be in the hospital, right? And, and divide that by the number of hospital beds we have. We're already currently at, uh, you know, 70, 80% hospital capacity. And hospitals always run it at some high capacity. You're, you're very well aware. Um, <laughs> but, um, but just think if, of adding a COVID burden on top of that, right? And, and even if we had the healthcare space to take care of them, think about all the people who wouldn't get care because we need those beds, right? And sure, we can take a, a football field and turn it into a hospital, kind of. Like, it won't work great, but it'll work. But is that really what we want to do? Is that really the kind of uh, society and the way that we want to do it? Is that, is that really the answer to this? In my opinion, no. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that that's right. You know, in comparison to, you know, washing your hands and wearing a piece of cloth on your face all the time. Like, I, you know, I, I, don't see, um, I don't see those as equivalent ideals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I personally don't, don't agree with, with a non-vaccine uh, caused herd immunity. So herd immunity is the goal. It is the goal. But achieving herd immunity, in my opinion, comes through a vaccine, not through, um, not through infective herd immunity. And, and a lot of the concepts that were pushed about, you know, infect the young and let them touch each other and then they won't, they won't <clears throat> spread it to their parent. You know, I, I don't really think that a lot of the methodology and a lot of those conversations was super sad. It was like the, the chicken pox parties. That yeah, I, I will say this. There's one thing that you said that I really do agree with. I would love for us to really say that we should and could keep our schools open safely. And, and one thing I've, I've said a lot, and I just spoke to, to a principal about this uh, here this morning. Um, if as a community, again, this is my opinion, as a community, if we really wanted to prioritize our children's education and say, hey, I want our schools to open, I want them to not be uh, encumbered by all these other issues and, and, and let the children go to school, then we would prioritize the children and we would open nothing but the schools. We would all do our best to minimize community spread because infections in the schools are a direct correlation to infections in the community, right? That, that's the reality of most infections, right? The more community spread you have, the more likely everything is to be unsafe. And so if we did a really good job of minimizing community spread outside of school, then community spread inside of school would be very low um, and, and we wouldn't we wouldn't have to talk about virtual education. We wouldn't have to talk about closing schools and things like that, or at least we'd be able to minimize those things in the schools. And that's what a lot of other countries are doing. They're putting their children first and they're saying, let's, let's focus on the children. Let's get them to school and let's make sure that we as a community don't, don't ruin it for them. Um, and in my opinion, that's not what I've seen. And, and that's mm -hmm. not what I've, I've experienced here. Um, and uh <clears throat> And, you know, I've, I've got two kids. They're uh, my older ones in virtual school right now. Um, she's thankfully doing okay, but I know that there are families that, uh, that can't deal with it and they, and they um, don't have the resources, they don't have the infrastructure. Um, and, you know, I hear a lot of ISD board meetings and everything else, and everyone's touting, you know, what a negative effect it's going to have for, for uh, some of these uh, underprivileged families to, to not be able to send their kids to school. And I totally agree. But those so same people who are complaining about it are also the ones going out unmasked, you know, having parties and, and, uh, and uh, putting themselves in other high-risk situations. 
and not helping the community spread be low enough for every child to be able to go to school safely. And again, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's something that frustrates me through all this. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause, um, so I, I, I told you I had COVID. Um, it, it definitely knocked me on my butt. And one of my, the ladies I interviewed on, on the previous episodes, Mrs. White, she had COVID. She's like 71, 72 years old. And her case was way worse than my case. Like seemingly from that small conversation we had, not only that, but whenever I had COVID, um, I didn't pass it to my wife or my kids. And so there's a lot of interesting research coming out about blood type. What do you know about blood type and it's possible prevention if, or is that just a farce? Um, so, you know, like everything, uh, you know, I think anyone who labels anything as a, a total farce, um, you know, everything's within the realm of possibility. Um, I don't know enough about it. I've heard inklings of it. Um, I, I think that there possibly could be some truth to it, but like most things, I think it's in the early stages of, of um, sort of research. Uh, mm-hmm. I personally don't know that that it uh, does or doesn't uh, have an impact. Um, and, and, and it could be, you know, the impact can change much like, you know, it's very much like I mentioned before the Swiss cheese model, um, you know, it could be one piece of, of a multifactorial puzzle. Um, it could be your blood type plus your viral inoculum plus your genetic risk factors plus, you know, uh, which strain you got from whom, et cetera. Hmm. Um, so uh, again, I, I don't know enough to, to say that it's, it's totally worth it or not. What I do know is from what I have seen, um, nobody's saying that, hey, this blood type's totally immune. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> that, that's, and, and that's, I think, an important distinction is, sure, your risk may be lower. Should it change how you practice and what you do? Absolutely not. Hmm. What, I guess, compare COVID to flu. And that's another one of those things that people are come, coming yeah. out with that flu is the, it's the exact same as COVID. We just get through the flu season every time. Um, kind of compare that and contrast those two diseases or viruses. Yeah, so, so people die from flu every year. Um, a lot of people die from flu every year. Um, and and uh, people die from COVID. You know, I, I think for the most part, what I would say is two things. One, flu generally doesn't cause as long-lasting symptoms as COVID is. Um, I think that's one thing that I've seen for sure. There's this concept of the long haulers, the people who have symptoms for a long, long time. Um, I do. I still do. I have anxiety right. because of it. Yeah. And so um, that's, that's one thing that flu generally doesn't cause, um, you know, despite what a lot of people uh, may feel. And, and maybe in the very end, once we have a handle on it, things will be right. Um, the mortality is lower. Um, what I will say, it's really important to, to understand when you're comparing data. Um, all the data that we currently have on, on COVID um, is treated and mitigated COVID, right? So we do have um, some treatments that work. To, to limit mortality. So like IV dexamethasone um, for, for hospitalized, hospitalized patients. Um, so that mortality data is technically skewed based on treatments, which is fine, right? Um, but you can't say that a, um, a flu strain and a COVID strain have the same mortality because they don't. We're treating COVID and we are, um, we are um, putting measures in place to try and minimize it. So when you're comparing numbers, you have to make sure that you're accurately comparing them, you know, and, and putting the asterisks as appropriate. Hmm. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people say that the, even with the flu vaccine, that would be considered a treatment, right? Or, or not. Um, flu vaccination is interesting. And part of it has to do with the number of strains of flu there are. So most influenza vaccines are quadrivalent. So they attack the four most common strains based on the pattern of the Southern hemisphere. Um, and so I would say probably not. I, what I guess from a, <clears throat> Let me start over. So, <laughs> well, so, so yes and no, right? So um, when you are immunized against influenza, you get immunized against four strains. So it's usually quadrivalent vaccine and, and they base it off of the 
um, the sort of predominant strains that they see in the southern hemisphere because their flu season comes before ours. Um, and, and there is some decreased um, symptoms and decreased uh, mortality, morbidity from even if you get a different strain, if you were vaccinated that year. So there is some data to support that. So sure, uh, I'd say yes and no. Um, but from a therapeutic perspective, I think I'm specifically talking about true treatments that once you've gotten infected okay. and you get, um, you know, you get a, uh, a treatment to help improve your symptoms. But, but sure, in theory, you know, you could be uh, treated beforehand through something like vaccination and, and it does improve your overall um, sort of disease course. So. Okay. Um, what do you know about uh, cross reactivity, B cell, T cell uh, versus um, like antibodies? Yeah. Great question. Um, so uh, none, nothing. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know, the, the body of evidence is wide. Um, I have not done enough, uh, enough time sort of researching it. There, the, I think o overall the concept being that given that there are other coronaviruses, there may be some people who have antibodies to the original coronaviruses who may be in one way or another less susceptible, less severe, or potentially immune to COVID-19. I would wish that that's the case. Honestly, mm -hmm. you know, and this is, this is the one thing I've been saying a lot, you know, for all the conspiracies that are out there and all the, all the people who have all these thoughts, I would love nothing more for them this to go away. I would love for I would love for it to be a hoax and for it to disappear. Um, I would love for it to, to wait. So you're, you're not on a power trip? You don't want to try and take over the world? Me personally, no, definitely <laughs> not. You know, I I have spent. It's funny. We um, you know, as part of a as part of a, a, a public health emergency that's declared by the government every. Every time that you, you spend uh, on something based on that public health emergency, you have to tag it and, and put it on what's called the ICS-214. You may be familiar with the 214 form. It's like a daily log. Um, and, and we've been filling those out since like February. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, explain what that is. It, it, so, uh, you know, a 214 form is just where you, if you're working on a specific mass casualty incident or, or a big disaster or something, um, you log things so it's a record of what you've been doing during the time um, specific to public health emergencies from a national level. Um, it helps you get reimbursed for your, your time, um, or not you personally, but your agency or your city mm -hmm. or whoever you work for. Um, so we, we sort of fill those out. Um, you know, I would love nothing more than to stop having to document things on 214. I could get so much more work accomplished. I've got so many other projects that are on, on the back burner that, yeah. you know, I've been trying to improve cardiac arrest survival in this community. I've been trying to, trying to work on, um, you know, cer certain quality uh, aspects of STEMI care and stroke care and all these other things that, that you know, we're still doing it now because uh, everyone's sort of acting like things are back to normal. So we're just doing both jobs at the same time. Um, but, but I would love nothing more than for COVID to up and disappear. Mm. Um, and, and I'd be fine with that. Um, but I don't think it's going to, um, and, and I, I really, um, I really wish it would, to be honest with you, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's negatively impacted everyone pretty much, um, and in one way has, or another. Has the strains of COVID or strain singular, I don't know. Um, it's, it's mutated a lot is what I've heard. Um, small gene mutations. Yeah. But not, not enough to be considered a new virus, um, but enough to show multiple strains. And even the initial symptoms on that first wave in, in March were far worse than today. Am I right? Or so I've heard. Um, I, I can't say definitively. Okay. I really don't. Um, I do know that there are some strains that are more infected than others. I know there are some strains that, that may, <clears throat> may, um, may change your symptom course and things like that. But again, I think it's just another layer to that Swiss cheese. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, you got to put it together with all the other things. Yeah. Um, so since I had COVID, Am I like if I if I went and, and hung out with somebody who has COVID, would I get COVID again? So current current data, how long ago did you have it? It was end of July. 
Yeah, so current data says right now you're still at risk. So it would be 90 days is what they say. Uh, so I guess, well, end of July, July, October, November. Yeah, so you're pretty much outside your window now at 90 days. Um, and, and that's based on a few uh, studies looking at how long antibodies stick around. Um, what we don't know is what antibodies mean. That's an important distinction too, that just because you have antibodies doesn't mean that you're not gonna get infected again. <clears throat> um, there was obviously the, the couple high profile cases where someone's been reinfected. It's definitely a possibility. Um, again, it's a novel virus. Anyone who speaks with full confidence or authority about every aspect of the disease probably doesn't understand it fully. Um, you know, I think that everything's up in the air and, and that's, that's such an important part of the scientific method and the scientific process is that, you know, science changes, you have to update with it, you know? So there are a lot of reasons we didn't do masks in the first place, but now we do them and that's because the science has changed. Um, and, and more than just the science, the, the um, sort of overall public health strategy changed a little bit from the very beginning of, of pure containment um, and mitigation to now trying to reopen safely. And, and this is a way in which we can do that. And so, um, uh, again, I can't say with confidence, but what I would say is right now, the CDC says 90 days is your window. Um, and, and what they really clearly mean when they say 90 days is not that you're immune for 90 days. They say that if you get reinf if you develop symptoms again within 90 days, we shouldn't retest you because the likelihood is that you're still going to be positive from your first, first round of illness and that your second one is probably from something else. Who knows? That can change. Again, and if it changes, the guidelines should change and we should adjust our practice because that's the practice of medicine. That's what it is. And that's kind of huge. Like the, the ability for science to roll the punches and um, that's, that's pretty massive. But I think that's kind of what a lot of these issues have stemmed from is that there've been so many just different uh, yeah. stories coming out. Yeah. And, you know, there was a great, a great article I read online or I'm sure it was a post or something that someone said, you know, part of the issue that, that people, especially non-scientists are, are dealing with right now is you're, you're sort of watching the scientific method unfold in front of you. So everyone did some sort of science project in you know elementary, middle school, talking about hypotheses and testing your hypotheses and coming up with your conclusions. Um, scientists do that all day, every day, a thousand times over. Um, and, and most people do it, but don't recognize that that's the process, right? And so uh, that's really what we're talking about here is, is most people don't, don't live and breathe the concept of levels of evidence, classes of recommendations, um, you know, and, and the concept that science is not, um, it's not all knowing, but it's also not, um, you know, a fixed object. You can't, you can't uh, sort of act as if once you know something, you know it forever, things change. And, mm -hmm. and as a scientist, you have to be okay with that. Um, as the general public, we also need to get okay with that. Um, but I think that's, that's where some of our struggles come from. So imagine that you have all the resources in the world right now. You, um, you know, Mayor Betsy Price comes to you and says, hey, uh, I want to give you everything right now. It's up to you to stop this right now. What are you going to do? And how do you close that gap between people who don't believe the disease is real, uh, you know, not wearing masks to the people who are completely just terrified of life right now? How do you close that gap? And what do you do to fix this current issue? Um, that's a great question. Um, and, and what I'd say is, um, I, I wish it were as easy as, as that. Yeah, um, no. I don't it's think, I don't think <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's anything that can be done just at the local level. I don't think it's anything that can be done just at the national level. I don't even know, um, that, that really, um, it, it is a thing that can be done. I really don't, um, at least not a hundred percent, but, but again, I think it all has to do with everyone taking little steps, right? Um, so, uh, if everyone were to wear masks, if everyone were to wash their hands and stay uh, physically distant um, when, they don't, when they don't need to be close. Um, if everyone is willing to accept that 2020 already sucks 
and it's okay if we skip a couple holidays and uh, we don't put others at risk, then maybe we can have them all again next year. And, and some people will be okay to do that and some people won't. Um, the more people that are okay to do it, the more likely it is that we'll be able to do things normally next year. And, and that's really the, the sort of concept is, you know, there's this, there's this thing um, called the marshmallow test for children. <clears throat> and, and the marshmallow test is uh, you go to a child and you say, I'll give you one marshmallow now, or I'll give you two marshmallows tomorrow. Um, and, and it's sort of a test of maturity. And, and most young children will take the marshmallow now. They want instant gratification. I want to go to the bars now. Or they'll choose the latter option when they start to understand that two is better than one and it's okay if I have to wait a little while. And, and I think that's what we're struggling with right now is there's not enough people willing to take the delayed gratification in lieu of immediate gratification. And, and if everyone would just take a deep breath, hold on and calm down for a little bit and, and put some of these measures in place just a little bit for a little while and watch our numbers come down and once they're low enough that we can actually get things under control, then we'll be able to open and do everything back to normal, you know, and, and whether that's through a vaccine uh, herd immunity or whether that's just due to significantly low community transmission. You know, you look at Australia right now, right? They don't have a vaccine, um, but they're fully open. They had a case with zero, they had a day with zero new cases of COVID, zero new cases, right? And granted, sure. there's a bunch of other, you know, they've got internal border controls and they're an island and, and there's all sorts of reasons why, you know, they're able to do it. Um, but but not really. Like you look at Melbourne, like big, big city, right? Zero cases. Why? Think about that. Like they're a hugely populous city with, yeah. with all the same things that we have. First world country and, and same types of people. And they were able to take it seriously enough to have their delayed gratification. And, and so we, we um, you know, in my culture, we had a big uh, religious holiday a couple of weeks ago where you, where you uh, dance for nine nights. So every night you go and, and dance and do, do a big, it's, it's a highlight of the year for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, everyone posts on, videos on Instagram and things. And, and most people, you know, decided we'll do it at home. It's unsafe. They're, they're, people aren't even running the events uh, in, in the U.S. and in England and in a lot of other countries. Um, but you go on and you see Australia and New Zealand and they're having the time of their life. And, and it's because they took it seriously enough for enough months um, to be able to do things back to normal again. Um, and, and that's, I think, what, what we're missing is we're not willing to go for delayed gratification. You know, 2020 is already like thrown away, right? Everything sucked in 2020. Um, just, just finish off the year, let it suck, you know, but, but if we don't, if we, if we try and push too early or we try and push too much or we don't care enough, um, then 2021 is going to suck too. Um, and, and if we really don't care enough, 2022 is going to suck. Mm. And the sooner people really realize that, I think that's the, that's the key, you know, did Australia and New Zealand actually have uh, those resources that you were talking about earlier? Yeah. They had a lot of great social infrastructure and social resources. They, um, you know, they, they had a great uh, government-led um, sort of uh, process and, and approach to, to how they combated the, this, you know, virus. And, and I think that's, that, that plus the resolve of their citizens, plus all the other measures that we know work, um, worked for them. So what you're saying is, is really what, what, what it comes down to is, is um, America just wasn't ready for to have these, this emergency fund, quote unquote, um, um, for, that, for this type of instance. Say that was one piece of the puzzle, in my opinion. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, it's it's not, no, not there's never a silver, there's never a silver bullet on all this. That's, and that, that's and yeah. that is such an oh god, that is such an important sentence. Like there's not a silver bullet for anything, not for treatment, yeah. 
not for transmission, not for the public health approach, nothing else. It's all about putting all the pieces together. That's awesome. Well, Dr. V, it's, I know you got to get out of here. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast and hopefully yeah. we can do this again in the future. Sounds great. Take care. All right. Bye.